WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. If people spent more time in nature, or at least appreciated its beauty, understood it better, and how humans benefit from it, would people make more of an effort to preserve it? Roger Shue hopes the answer to that question is yes. As a geologist and environmental scientist who teaches at the University of North Carolina Wilmington and the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, he's worked with a host of environmental advocacy groups, including Cape Fear River Watch and the Nature Conservancy, over the last two decades. Because of that work, he's identified what he calls the seven natural wonders of the southeastern coastal plain. With the help of a documentary crew, Roger Shu has created Shu's Natural Treasures, a film about these seven wonders that also taps the knowledge of other local environmental experts. Today, we'll explore some of what the film has to teach, what local leaders and citizens can do to preserve the local natural wonder, and what we stand to lose if no one does anything. Roger Shu, welcome to Coastline. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's really good to have you back with us. One of the first things you said to me about the reason that you wanted to make this film started with, with everything going on. So what do you mean? What's going on that's affecting these natural resources? Well, everything that's going on in this area is primarily growth. Um, There's nothing wrong with growth, but sometimes growth... Uh, unplanned can you know, infringe, if you will, on our ecosystems. We want to make sure that the ecosystems are preserved for now and the future because that's one of the things that really brought people here to start with. I grew up in this area in Brunswick County, as a matter of fact. It's very different now than what it was then. But what we're hoping to do is maintain some of these large natural areas so that students you know, people can coming to the area, uh, both adults and lifelong learners, as we hope everybody is, is that we would be able to have them have the opportunity to go out and see some of the things that I've seen over the time that I've lived and grown up here. So there's a lot of value in nature, and there's a lot of value to, you know, each one of us to be able to go out and enjoy something in the open. It's refreshing, it's reinvigorating. It's actually found to be, in studies, mental health issues as well. It actually helps your mental health of hearing those breezes in the longleaf pines or hearing that water flow down the river or crash on the beach. Yes, I mean, there's the concept of nature baths these days. <laughs> Part of good self-care. So in the film, you, you talk about some of the things, that some of the reasons that you think it's important to educate people about the southeastern coastal plains specifically. So let's listen to what you have to say in the film. It's restorative just going into nature itself, but it's also important to understand that we need to keep these areas for the future generations too. And with all the urbanization that we've got going on in New Hanover County, and with Brunswick County being the fastest growing county in the state, this one right next to us, where the green swamp is. Anytime that you're looking at doing what we call fragmentation or edge effects 
own ecosystems, you're diminishing that ecosystem. So as populations move closer and closer to some of these, we need to make sure that we've got large enough wildlife areas to maintain a true healthy population. Roger Shu in the documentary, Shu's Natural Treasures. Okay, you talked about it again. And when we just spoke, you talked about these larger natural areas that are important to maintain. And in this clip, you used the term fragmentation and the term edge effects. What, what do you mean by fragmentation or edge effects? Whenever you're thinking about biodiversity, there's a couple of things that lead to biodiversity loss. And we're in the 36th biodiversity hotspot here in the coastal plain of the East Coast, Atlantic Coastal Plain and Gulf Coastal Plain. What does that mean, 36th? Well, and, there's, and there are 35 more hotter spots? Uh, by hotspot, it means that it's an important global hotspot for biodiversity. It has so many species in it that need to be preserved. It's been identified as an area that should be identified for now and the future because of that value to biodiversity. And so whenever we look at that and the things that will impact biodiversity, two of them are fragmentation and you know, whenever you look at the edge effects. So what is fragmentation? It's basically if I had a forest area and you put roads through it. So what's going to happen in putting those roads through there, you're segmenting ecosystems. And now you are taking away part of the corridors for the species to move freely you know, within that particular ecosystem. So now I've done something like in the tropical rainforest where you put in all the roads down there, that leads to segmentation. And that segmentation decreases the viability of some of the species. Likewise, if you have edge effects, let's say that we continue to bring in development or areas where you clear the areas next to those forest areas, well, the species that are in there you know, need a certain amount of acreage, a certain amount of area to have you know, a healthy ecosystem to thrive in. So foraging, nursery grounds, all those need to be large enough to be able to support that biodiversity. So those are things that we see in our area as development comes. And one of the things you want to do is like the green swamp, holly shelter preserve. You know, all of these areas are pretty large, but some of the smaller ones that you put some kind of a barrier or baffle, you know, within that ecosystem, that creates a real problem for the species uh, and their health. So biodiversity is the real reason why we're worried about those and preservation of that biodiversity. Okay, so biodiversity, we're talking about a large number of species. That's what makes it biodiverse. But what can you name some specific species that suffer when you fragment a natural area, like putting roads through it, as you suggested. Well, one of the things that we have uh, here is one of our endangered species, the red cockaded woodpecker would be an example. Red cockaded woodpeckers need old trees. They need, for instance, longleaf pines are their favorite tree. They want to have these older ones that you can you know, build the nest cavity in, in that heartwood in the center of the tree. So many of these trees, when they get the heartwood, are going to be relatively old trees. 
What is heartwood? It's the resinous part in the center of the tree, part of what longleaf are known for. If you've ever heard of light wood or lightered, when you smell that, you can strike a match and it will just immediately catch on fire. Uh, that heartwood then becomes part of what they have for their nesting area. And it turns out to have those and the ecosystem has to be long enough lived to have those larger trees. And the other thing is it's been found that, you know, red cockaded woodpeckers, and this is true for many species, you need a certain area that you can feed so that you can provide nurture for the babies that have come along. And the case of a, a red cockaded family, if you will, you know, that's around 200 acres. And so having larger areas that provide, you know, savannas where they can catch lots of insects uh, to raise the, the baby birds, then that's really what you need. So that's just one example. And we're, we are going to talk a lot more in this episode about what people can do. But I just have to address the elephant in the room when we're talking about these larger natural areas. And you've acknowledged that the greatest threat, especially to longleaves, is population growth and urbanization development, right? I mean, well, that's a bigger threat than... Well, that's, that's, that's one of the biggest threats, but the other is either presence or absence of fire. Fire is absolutely essential for longleaf pines. Um, because in order to set seed, to drop that seed, they drop seed onto bare ground. And so what you want to have is low intensity fires to sweep through uh, those areas. Then the cones can drop their seed and have more longleaf coming uh, up. So one of the things that you've got to do is have the fire. But if you're decreasing the area, then that obviously is also important. You can take an example here. There's very few longleaf pine areas left in New Hanover County. You can count them on your hand with Carolina Beach State Park, Hugh McRae, uh, or uh, Longleaf Pine uh, Park now, and also Halliburton on UNCW's campus. We have 100 acres, and there's some up in the northern part of New Hanover County which is an area that is really under rapid development. Yes. And so there's the potential to lose some of these natural areas, some of the last ones remaining in New Hanover County. So if you look in the surrounding counties, Brunswick County, Bladen County, Pender County, these are areas that have some of these larger remaining uh, areas. Holly Shelter is a game land. That's Pender County. Pender County. Uh, Green Swamp with the Nature Conservancy. Brunswick County. Brunswick County. Camp Lejeune in Onslow. Uh, and by the way, Camp Lejeune in Fort Bragg does do some of the best management of their areas because they do repetitive fire, so they maintain a very healthy ecosystem on their uh, areas. And so some of these are ones that we really want to, to highlight uh, to maintain to ensure that these, you know, can be a viable uh, ecosystem down the road. It's very easy to get rid of a small area with a little road, much harder to get one rid of one that's a much larger refugia, we call it. You're listening to Coastline. UNCW's Roger Shue is my guest today. We're exploring what he calls the seven natural wonders of the southeastern coastal plain. After this short break... 
more on development and those mysterious Carolina bays. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Roger Shu teaches geology and environmental science at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Over the last couple of decades, he's volunteered with a host of conservation groups, including the Nature Conservancy, Cape Fear River Watch, North Carolina Coastal Federation, and Sierra Club. And he's taking his knowledge of the seven wonders of North Carolina's southeastern coastal plain and turning it into a documentary called Shoes Seven Natural No, it's just Shoes Natural Treasures, right? We're not we're not putting a number there. Shoes Natural Treasures, in part to raise awareness of the existence of these wonders and what happens if we lose them. Okay, so I said it, Roger Shoe, seven natural wonders. <laughs> just Nate, what are the seven natural wonders? So how we started this is when I lead groups into the field, uh, I take them to different areas that are representative of you know what are endemic to our area, really important ecosystems that played a role over time in our area. So those include Carolina bays, longleaf pine savannas, and these are both wet and xeric sand hill. We also have the Cape Fear River and the estuary. We also have the bottomland hardwoods and particularly like the Three Sisters where the old growth forest of Cypress are on the Black River. We also have salt marshes, which I dearly love to smell myself. Yes. (laughs) And barrier islands uh, is the other. And the last one is carnivorous plants. And the carnivorous plants primarily was because of our iconic species here, our state, North Carolina state carnivorous plant. Let's say it together, the 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 Venus Venus flytrap. But we have lots of other carnivorous plants. We have lots of other ones. In fact, we can go down to the green swamp and we can take a look at 13 or 14 or so different ones that are all special. It's just that most people are aware of the Venus flytrap over all the others. And I'm going to ask you about the carnivorous plants and what they do in the ecosystem. But first, just before we went to break, we were talking about development and the impact of development on some of these important species here and on biodiversity in general. And you were saying that it's harder to do away with a larger natural area than it is say, just to put a road through a smaller natural area. But the larger question of people keep coming here, the, the population is growing at an incredibly explosive rate, and the need for housing and for services and infrastructure isn't stopping with that population growth. And whenever you bring up conservation in a place that's growing this rapidly, you always hear somebody say, well, your house is sitting on a place that used to be a natural area. And what are you going to do? Put up a stop sign and tell people they can't come anymore? So what do we, I mean, is there a way to balance this explosive growth and keeping these natural areas? And the answer to that is yes. And if you look at this, one of the things that everybody thinks about 
uh, that I've talked to coming here. They love the environment. They love the climate. They love to be able to go outside and recreate most of the year. So if you don't have these places to recreate most of the year, then something of value is going to be lost. So what do we do? So in some of these areas that we do recognize that we're growing, we need development, we need housing, but you can also do low-impact development. You can, in areas that are dense, more densely populated within the city, for instance, go up uh, a little bit more. And one of the requirements I think that we should think about uh, in our development ordinances that we have is to ensure that there's a certain amount of natural area preserved on any area. And there is that in there, but I think it really needs to be shown that we protect not just upland areas, but wetland areas. We've got to worry about stormwater management on these. And of course, we all know that we've been flooding more uh, of late. So all of these things, if we maintain natural areas in our development sites that we just don't clear cut, this is a real issue. And we've all seen it here. The clear cutting is just really should not be an acceptable way to develop. Because whenever you do that, you're removing the trees, the vegetation, the wetland areas that are really responsible for absorbing, you know, some of that stormwater runoff to maintain or control some of that flooding that we got. And at the same time, what a real plus. You maintain a small patch area, I call it a little patch forest, for some biodiversity. You're gonna love going out and seeing the birds, the squirrels and salamanders or whatever that might be there. So that you're actually be able to enjoy a little bit of nature in your subdivision if you do it that way. And if you don't do it that way, then you know we have a risk really of losing something that's so special to everybody here. Um, and I would just like to see the opportunity for everybody to you know, see the value of people that have moved here years ago or grew up here. Because if somebody comes here now and you see development on Highway 17 that's just sprawling from Leland all the way to South Carolina, let's hope that we don't have a whole corridor of just stoplights all the way down you know, to South Carolina. Let's make sure and maintain some of these natural areas that we've got for the future. And you, so you actually just said you think that clear cutting should not be an acceptable way of developing. That's, I really do believe that. And more. of course, that and increases costs for developers. It does increase the cost, but let me tell you what's a benefit to the developer. And that is, is that overall, you're going to go in and re-landscape that area. And you're going to put in small trees and some vegetation that's not even native to the area. In those particular areas, what you want to do, if you maintain some of the trees, I promise you the value of that home, the value of that ecosystem, people would want to come there more. They would certainly enjoy themselves more by having those natural areas within those uh, subdivisions. And so I think it would be a real win for everybody. Tree ordinances you know, are a real plus. We need to make sure that we maintain some of the canopy. It's going to take you 30 years if you plant a tree out there, for that tree to get to the point of providing you with an economic benefit, as well as things like carbon sequestration, 
habitat for species. So there's plenty of reasons why you would want to maintain at least some of the natural area in any development. And we need to talk about carbon sequestration. But first, what are Carolina bays <laughs> and where did they come from? Okay. This is one of the real mysteries. Uh, in fact, in geology, I like to say it's great to have a mystery <laughs> that you, you don't know everything. And I think that's a real plus. They didn't even really know there were Carolina bays and the coastal plain until you started doing flying. So it wasn't until the 1930s that people really actually realized these. So they went up and they saw all these oval features that are all oriented from the northwest to the southeast. And you're talking about water, and right? Not like all of lakes. them. Oh, and, no. Okay. And in fact, uh, they're both what we call water-filled bays, like White Lake, Jones Lake, Singletary Lake. And, of course, some people don't say Lake Waccamaw is a bay, but we're going to say it's a bay as well. And so in looking at those areas, but we also have many more wetland areas that are just organic soil under those bays. And in fact, North Carolina, Bladen County to Robeson County and to the edge of South Carolina in the coastal plain, that's the nexus of Carolina bays. We have more Carolina bays than anybody else in the whole coastal plain. And they extend all the way from New Jersey, you know, down Alabama way. So they extend a very long way. But what you can see in our area is overlapping hundreds of Carolina bays. Some of them have been uh, taken over the years and changed into farming or agricultural areas because of that good wetland soil. Others of them are wetlands that are preserved now, some of them in conservation uh, areas. And then, of course, as you mentioned, we've got the, the Bay Lakes too, Bladen Lakes area is really the focal point for most of our uh, Carolina Bay lakes. But all those lakes are slowly filling in as well because they're all really shallow. I mean, a few feet deep. Lake Waccamaw average is probably about five or seven feet deep is all. Jones Lake, you can walk across half of it probably without drowning. So there's lots of shallow water in those. And Those are filling in, you said? Well, they're slowly? filling in with the vegetation coming from the sides uh, that we've got. So each one of those, you know, we probably had many more water-filled ones, you know, in the past. But over time, vegetation has encroached on those and left us with a good wetland area that's really high in biodiversity as well. So Carolina bays were recognized uh, in that regard. People looked at them and said, well, they must have been formed by an explosive meteorite because of this orientation. And so the meteorite would explode it and carve out this very shallow bay. Uh, this area. That's one theory. Uh, there's never been real evidence found to support that with residue of an exploded meteorite or anything. But still people say it could have been an explosion above ground that could have led to this. There's many others. The most accepted theory in the geologic world, but there's still discussion, uh, is that they're wind-oriented lakes. And so the lakes that were there, because we have preferential wind direction during different times of year, either from the southwest blowing to the northeast or from the northeast going to the southwest. And so those prevailing winds would then move the water in such a fashion that it would orient that into an elongate 
northwest southeast trending bay. So that's the most accepted uh, theory for. Is that what you think? I think that's probably the most logical one. Of course, you can't get away from the really fantastic ideas of things like swimming fish, you know, kind of swimming in circles to carve out the areas, or a giant beaver back in the day, <laughs> carving, you know, actually going in and building a dam and creating that. There were big beavers back then, but I'm not sure they were that big. So, How big are we talking? Oh, some beavers were up to five feet. So, yeah, they they were nice size. You wouldn't want to run into them. <laughs> so, but they're anyway, vegetarian, though, they're, right? They're, yeah, so you wouldn't have to worry too much. But uh, this whole area, in fact, was you know blessed with lots of different creatures. You know, like I'm sure you know about the um, ground sloth, the giant sloth that was found right over near campus, and that's down in the Cape Fear Museum now, and also up in the North Carolina Museum. So, but anyway, back to Carolina Bays. You know, there's a lot of reasons why they're just really special features. Uh, they they have a rim of sand, so you go from something that's really dry on the southeast rim where you've got wiregrass and longleaf pine, and then you go into the bay itself, and you've got organic-rich soils that have lots of bay trees, cypress, and others. In fact, the Carolina Bay is not named, as we talk about in the film, it's not named because of it's a water field feature. It's named because of the bay trees that occur within the Carolina Bays. And of course, we have lots of bay trees in uh, our area. My favorite is the, the Red Bay. Uh, that's the one also that right now has some issues associated with it because of an introduced invasive species that came in at Savannah that spread all the way up here, all the way down into Florida that you know, really leads to the demise of Red Bays really quickly if they're infected with a fungus. We're talking with UNCW's Roger Shue, and he created a documentary called Shoe's Natural Treasures. And one of the elements, one of the natural wonders that you cover in this documentary are the saltwater marshes. And in this particular clip, we hear from Tracy Scrabble, who's a coastal scientist who worked for the North Carolina Coastal Federation for many years. And here she talks about the value of these saltwater marshes. Coastal marshes are one of the most valuable ecosystems in the world. Marshes really absorb a fair amount of floodwaters coming off of land. Those floodwaters are often polluted from stormwater runoff picking up all the pollutants and the toxins and the fertilizer. These marshes really are kind of kidneys that can absorb and filter out those pollutants before it gets into the estuary. They're also valuable for erosion control. Even a very narrow marsh can dissipate about 95% of boat wakes and waves that come ashore. These coastal marshes, if you take them out of the ecosystem, we don't have 95% of our commercial fisheries in North Carolina and nationwide. In North Carolina, we find everything from flounder, black drum, red drum, mackerel, trout, blue crabs, all types of our valuable fishes spend some portion of their life in marshes. Along the edge, we've got oysters, which of course also are 
incredibly valuable in their ability not only as a food source and as a habitat for fishes, but they themselves clean the water. One adult oyster can filter about 65 gallons a day of polluted water, thereby helping us to clean up our estuaries. And we can live in concert with nature instead of just pretending that we live separately from nature. We are in an extremely rapidly developing state and area of the coast. I think it's gotten bad enough where people understand that if we all don't start to do our part, that we're going to lose that which brought us here. Tracy Scrabble, coastal scientist in the documentary Shoes, Natural Treasures. Roger Shoe, so many of these benefits that she talked about regarding salt marshes reach so far beyond just having, for instance, healthy oysters or fish for humans to eat. And the way she talks about the oysters filtering polluted water, mmm, let's go have some oysters. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> do, you, what, do you eat oysters? I do. We have a family oyster roast every year when all the family comes into town. And uh, so I, whenever I was growing up, as I mentioned in the video, you know, we didn't really think too much about polluted waters. We would go down and, you know, in the wintertime, because it was the R months, which is not really absolutely true anymore, but we would go down, you'd wait for the cold front to come through and go get your oysters. But we didn't really think about it. We would walk into the marsh area and we'd pick up oysters and bring them back home and eat an oyster stew or oyster roast, and uh, really fantastic. But today, um, because of runoff, stormwater runoff in particular for most of our tidal creeks. Uh, all of our tidal creeks in New Hanover County have issues primarily because of fecal coliform bacteria as the primary thing uh, with stormwater runoff. So you have to think about these. And so again, what the Coastal Federation and others are doing trying to restore oysters uh, in our area to make us, you know, some people call it the, the Napa Valley of oysters. You know, that's what we'd like to see in the Pamlico Sound, up the lower, very lower part of the Cape Fear, along our intracoastal waterway is to have healthy uh, oyster populations that are there because they are important to it. And oysters, in fact, provide habitat for many other things. So their shells are areas that you can colonize other you know, species on for then other fin fish to come in. Our primary nursery grounds, which are mostly in our marsh areas and up the Cape Fear River, those primary nursery grounds are the reason we have uh, an economic plus for our fishermen, $100 million industry in North Carolina for these. And so having healthy uh, salt marshes is so important for many, many reasons. And let me just say, Tracy in making those comments is the real reason why I asked for all of these guys to be participants in this particular video because there's a lot of them and I could mention them. Maybe I'd like to mention them at the end if I could. Sure, so. we can, yeah, we can do that. And I also want to talk more about salt marshes and carbon sequestration even there when we come back. You're listening to Coastline. Roger Shu is my guest today after this short break. 
More also about how local leaders and citizens can make a difference. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Roger Shu teaches geology and environmental science at the University of North Carolina Wilmington. He's working on a documentary called Shu's Natural Treasures, which profiles what he calls the seven natural wonders of the southeastern coastal plain. And just before we went to break, Roger Shu, we were talking about salt marshes and their benefits and One of the things that wasn't, I don't think, in that clip, but Tracy Scrabble talks about in the documentary is the fact that salt marshes sequester carbon. First of all, what is carbon sequestration? I think a lot of us have probably heard the term but maybe don't have a working understanding of its meaning. So carbon sequestration is basically just a very simple term to say that the carbon that's produced is not released into the atmosphere that then may go into the ocean. So in the ideal case that you'd look at, most people think about, for instance, if you burn coal, you have CO2 produced. So right now, one of the problems with that is the greenhouse gas associated with that. So there's efforts underway to try to take that CO2, pull it out of the atmosphere, or before it gets into the atmosphere, you know, capture it. In the case of coal, for instance, you might want to capture that and pump it underground for, you know, geologic storage. So what happens in the natural world is that plants, you know, obviously with photosynthesis, you know, you're going to use carbon, the CO2 to come in to produce foods. And so one of the things that happens with these, if I can maintain that tree, and that tree is going to keep growing, it's going to keep bringing in all that carbon. And until it dies, and maybe you would burn it, that CO2 would be stored in that tree. Inside the tree. Inside the tree itself. And so it turns out that in a forest, you know, the above ground, but also the below ground root system is very important for sequestering carbon, like in a longleaf pine. In fact, it may be as much in the root system as it is in the above ground. So in a salt marsh ecosystem, you have, of course, the marsh grass, the Sporobulus alterniflorus, the big grass that everybody sees. That particular one is really the, the food. It's, it's the factory, if you will, of the salt marsh. And so as it grows, it's taking in the carbon. So a lot of that's stored in the root system of the salt marsh too. If you go out and step in salt marsh, you get the smell, but also you'll feel the root, the mass that's there. So it turns out that salt marshes are really as productive in producing carbon, you know, food stuff, as tropical rainforest. Now, a lot of people don't think that, but just imagine the amount of organic matter you know, in the salt marsh. And so if we can maintain that, 
without losing the salt marsh, then that is stored in that area. So that's sequestering of carbon to not then get into the atmosphere. Sea level rise from climate change is also going to have an impact on some of these salt marshes. And why is that, given that it's already salt water in the salt marshes, so it's not the same thing as salt water intrusion creating ghost forests and um, more inland waterways? But, yeah, why? Well, in fact, it is a little bit that way. Um, what happens with sea level rise, a lot of people just think about sea level rise on the beach. But actually, our barrier islands are being threatened by both sides with the water rising. So the barrier islands are narrowing, you know, on both sides. So our salt marshes with increasing uh, water levels, what happens? They are adapted to have a certain level of water with the tidal flux every day. But what if you raise that water another two feet? Well, that would submerge that vegetation. So what you have to do if I'm going to maintain a healthy salt marsh you either got to do one of two things. You either got to migrate the marsh to higher ground to maintain it, or you've got to build up the marsh level at that location to maintain its level at a certain level of water. Okay? Are either of those two things options? And so in some places, we do have enough sediment and organics to maintain that growth, but in many cases, it doesn't. So what will happen? If I increase salinity, think about the Cape Fear River. You increase the salinity as we're deepening the Cape Fear River because salinity is going to increase. It's called reducing hydraulic drag. And so it's easier for water to move up and back and forth in the river, tidal flux, sea level, or whatever, whenever you have a deeper and wider river. So what's happening there is you're going to have a saline water moving further up the river and this has been deepened over time since 1870 to 42 feet today. So what this is man-made dredging. This is man-made dredging. Efforts. Oh, absolutely. And so in doing that, it's necessary for transportation, for shipping, maritime uh, industry. But as you do that, so the plants that are adapted to a certain salinity, well, if the salinity increases, they're going to try to move up the river. Well, the plants can only move so far because the big high cliffs or the mainland areas are going to be high, so they can only migrate so far. So at some point in time, we would be losing some of that marsh. And it would start out, for instance, the freshwater marsh moves further inland, and then the brackish water marsh moves in, and then the saltwater marsh. So again, uh, that's the two ways that you would be able to adapt, if you will, to sea level change. So scientists are predicting sea levels or sea level will rise by between two feet by the end of this century. But if we don't do anything to reverse the effects of climate change, it, we could see a rise between three and a half to seven feet. If, so two feet, three and a half feet, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I think you just described part of what that would look like. What are some other ways that would be observable and that would be? Because that's actually quite a drastic change. So yeah, what would we see as a result of that? So we have a prime working lab 
right here in Wilmington. And it's actually by NOAA's 2022 data because they updated their 2017 data. It looks like they are now estimating about a two-foot rise by 2070 with a three-foot plus rise by 2100. Now, the, the dire scenarios that you describe, obviously, you know, are part and parcel of what may happen with some of the ice sheet loss, say, in Antarctica or Greenland. But let's just stick with those. So right here, during um, sea level rise, which is now accelerated from about 1.9 millimeters per year, today it's 3.6 plus millimeters per year. And we know that just looking at the Wilmington Tide Gauge, which is right underneath the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge. And so last year during Hurricane Ian came through and Hurricane Ian shoved water up the Cape Fear River because the northeast quadrant of the storm, the storm surge pushed up the Cape Fear River, didn't let the waters flow out. We had an increase of 2.9 feet of rise associated with that over what we call mean highest high water, which is the average of high tides in the area. So what happened during that 2.95 feet? Battleship Road was underwater with a foot of water. The battleship parking lot was underwater, as was you know some of the other areas. Point Peter, Southport had water in the streets, Carolina Beach, areas on Brunswick County beaches. And so just think about it. Let's say that that two feet, which we also had last January 3rd, at two feet with just a moon tide. And WHQR does a great job every time you'll hear about coastal flooding. I hear it all the time on WHQR. It comes from the National Weather and Service. And it does. <laughs> but I can tell you, you can predict it yourself by just looking at the phase of the moon and whether the moon is at perigee, closeness to uh, the Earth. It's about 30,000 miles or miles closer uh, at perigee. So what happens? January 3rd of last year, we rose the water by two feet. The roads were covered. So just imagine 2070, 2070 comes along. That's what every day at high tide will look like in 2070. So we're basically losing a whole bunch of real estate. So what you want to do is you want to maintain as many areas. You first want to mitigate, if possible, you know, reduce our CO2 or actually all greenhouse gases if we possibly can. You also want to plan not to develop in areas that are at risk. The Zurich Insurance Group, in fact, said, try to plan and plan for the what you think may not happen. And plan so that you incentivize smart growth as opposed to, you know, bad growth. And so in an area like what we have in our area, you just need to know, map out all the areas, know the water level, the elevation of all these, and then do your zoning and your planning to make sure that you are you know, not going to be in harm's way, that you're not going to be putting structures in an area that are at risk, that will have a problem with infrastructure, stormwater management, and also safety. Think about us being isolated during Hurricane Florence here with all of that. So anyway, there's just a lot of reasons that we want to know all of those things before going in. Knowing nature, how it operates, 
and knowing the value of nature both really is what the goal of this whole project was. And if people can understand and see these different areas, then I'm hoping that we can provide this to school kids, but also to you know our elected officials so that they would be able to say, wow, this is really special, or this is really special, and how can we save some of these areas for everybody to enjoy now and into the future? We just have such a rich cultural and social and maritime history here. I just you know, I just don't want to see it lost, if at all possible. Yeah. And some of the points that you're raising have been weirdly political. In other words, flood hazard maps were a negotiation. That was news to me uh, because I thought that was a product of science. But I guess before they get published, there's discussion <laughs> with political leaders. Well, and, and we're what? having a changing, changing landscape. You know, when you have so many 500-year flood events uh, in, you know, 25 of them in seven years. So we need to think about remapping, uh, assessing, you know, what the economy is. We don't want people, you know, losing their property. We want people to live and enjoy themselves and love these areas. But you need to know the area first. Right. Oh. And and you're actually uh, going to be speaking with local leaders about Eagles Island and some of the issues there. We we just have a few minutes left. I know you, you also want to mention some of the other folks who are involved in Shoes Natural Wonders, this documentary that we expect to see out at the end of April 2023. Is that right? Uh, yes, we're going to have a premiere on April 30th uh, at 4 on UNCW's campus. I'm trying to get them to drop shoes, natural treasures, but, you know, it's <laughs> natural treasures. Uh, and so we're going to have that. But there's still work to do. We're going to be working on this through the summer, just to be honest, because we want to add in some even more educational things that, you know, we can provide these as segments. For instance, the salt marsh will be a standalone. Longleaf Pine will be a standalone, as well as make a feature-length video. That makes sense. So these can be modules also for kids in school. Now, Eagles Island, what what are your concerns about that? Uh, Eagles Island is a place that is very low. Uh, It's over 3,000 acres. About 1,600 of those acres are low marsh areas that have some dredge spoil islands, you know, some ghost forest, as well as a little bit of cypress and gum. The area is so low that whenever you have, you know, high tide flooding, if you will, what I just described two times last year, uh, the roads go underwater. You have to shut down the battleship for tourists to come in. I've seen Canada geese swimming in the parking lot. I've seen egrets fishing on the road, on that road. And so why would you put structures that would be at risk on an area like that? What you can do, and our vision, I'm referring to Uh, the old Eagles Island Coalition and the Eagles Island Task Force now, we have kind of a vision that you would be able to have a visitor center, a nature area that complements the battleship. And in putting these areas, we could put it in, you know, an area you raise everything up. You don't put in structures that are at risk. If a flood comes over, you know, a boardwalk or a, a rock road, there's no big deal. 
but it provides three things. It provides our history, our culture, rice culture, as well as naval stores, our maritime history, and it really just highlights the benefits and all the beauty of the Cape Fear River that we've got. That's played such a role in Wilmington's, but also southeastern North Carolina and North Carolina's history. It's an opportunity we shouldn't pass up. The film, the documentary, is, for now, Shoes Natural <laughs> Treasures. And who else besides Tracy Scrabble's in this? And we have other local environmental yeah. experts. And so what I tried to do was get folks that I, I know. Uh, I didn't want people to hear me all the time. So these other guys are really, <laughs> you know, excellent. For instance, Kemp Burdett uh, with the Cape Fear River, C.R. Robbins for the Black River, Deb Maurer, Longleaf Pine Forest, Chris Helms, uh, Carolina Bays, Paul Hosier, Barrier Islands. We also had Ashley Lomboy come in and talk uh, some as well about the Native Americans. And so thanks also to my video group headed by Jesse. And also got Bradley, Krista, Catherine, and Jeff are really fantastic to work with as well. And we'll have a link to all the information on our website. That's this edition of Coastline Roger Shoe. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline's a production of WHQR Public Media. Find this episode at whqr.org. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.